0: Isn't he worthy, y'all? Sometimes it's the simple songs that just connect with you. I don't know about y'all, but I was exposed to a lot of different faiths growing up. And I was exposed to the process of digging down deep and examining faith after faith after faith that told me that that was the right way. But there was something about Jesus that what's different, that when you compare him to the rest of what's out there, you realize that everything else pales in comparison. You realize that those simple words of my beloved, more than thousands and thousands and thousands, a thousand is too few. More than anything, Jesus, our beloved, is the one worthy of our praise, the one worthy of our singing, the one worthy of our lives. And as a church, as we sing those simple words, let us ask God that it's through the singing that that would be pressed down and planted deeply into our hearts so that when we're tempted to look elsewhere, God reminds us more than thousands, more than anything else, Jesus is worthy. Amen. Can we just give a round of applause one more time? Let us just praise him. Well, good morning again. Uh, My name is Richard, one of the pastors here. And uh, typically I don't preach with a hat, but me and my barber had some miscommunication this week. So um, yeah, the hat's going to stay on today. So uh, um, yeah, while, while we're here, let's go ahead and dive into God's word. Would you join me in the book of Joshua? Uh, this morning, we're actually beginning a new series for us as a church, typically at the beginning of the year, uh, the pastors and leaders, we get together and we just spend some time seeking the Lord. God, what would you have for us this morning, this, this new year? What would you have for us to kind of focus our attention on to recalibrate our hearts towards what you're calling us into in the new year? And so uh, we're beginning a series called For the Culture. Where well, we're gonna take a look at our biblical core values that uh, over the last few years, really, we've been working on a, a, a vision script where in that vision script, we believe God has clarified for us who he's called us to be as a people. Uh, these biblical core values are not unique to us. They are core values for all believers. However, we believe that these particular six values are what we're praying through and what we believe God has called us to embody as a church. So when you experience Cornerstone, when you think about Cornerstone, when you think about the people, uh, the believers of Cornerstone, we pray that you would be able to recognize how God has um, pressed this into the lives of his people here at this local church. Joshua chapter one, verses one through nine, it reads as follows. After the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua of Nun. Moses' assistant. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now you and all the people prepare to cross over the Jordan to the land I am giving the Israelites. And I have given you every place where the sole of your foot treads, just as I promised Moses. Your territory will be from the wilderness, and Lebanon. To the great river of the euphrates or the great river the euphrates river and all the lands of the hittites and west to the mediterranean no one will be able to stand against you as long as you live i will be with you just as i was with moses i will not leave you or abandon you be strong and courageous for you will distribute the land i swore to their fathers to give them as an inheritance and above all be strong and very courageous to observe carefully the whole instruction my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you will have success wherever you go. This book of instruction must not depart from your mouth. You are to meditate on it day and night so that you may observe, or you may carefully observe everything written in it for then you will prosper and succeed in whatever you do. Haven't I commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you that we can gather together under your name. We thank you that we can sing songs to you as declarations of truths that many of us believe so strongly in, but also... Father, there are times when we find those truths to be hard to hold on to. So I'm thankful for the assemblies of the saints that when our voices fail to sing things that we know to be a reality, we can be encouraged by the singing of our brothers and sisters declaring over us and to us that God is indeed who he says he is. Father, my prayer this morning is that we would encounter you in a real way. Father, what we hope to see happen through this series, but not even just the series, through your word, Father, is that you would bear within us fruit of righteousness. That we would be known as a people who looks like your Son, Jesus Christ. In the way that we love one another, in the way that we love you, in the way that we speak about you, Lord, Father, would we be known as those who have been in the presence of Christ? Father, we. Ask that you would even now posture our hearts in such a way to be submissive and willing to surrender, Lord, to even things that may rub us a little bit of the wrong way. Will we allow the prodding of your spirit to be something that moves us towards you and not away from you? Father, we need you to be our help. Minister to us this morning. Would I simply make plain what you have already said in your word? And would your people receive it gladly as those who are needy beggars? For I am a needy beggar, Father. Would I also eat from your word, even as it is proclaimed out of my mouth? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When you hear the word culture, what are some things that come to mind? that's a rhetorical question so i'm glad that no one shouted out an answer but for some when you identify or think about culture, some of the things that come to mind or perhaps the hometown that you originated in or perhaps the people group that you belong to and whose heritage has influenced and shaped you uh, and how you experience and how you see and think about life growing up in saudi arabia the culture was easily identifiable that people wore, or wore a certain type of clothing, people ate a certain type of cuisine, they spoke a certain type or a specific language, and they interacted with one another in specific ways. Typically, when we think of culture, we assume that culture is shaped by yesterday's traditions or today's celebrities. Examples of such could be in entertainment where people like Beyonce or Drake or Little Dirk or uh, the Migos or even the Kardashians are influencers of a culture. Yeah. Yeah. Podcast shows like Drink Champs or Joe, Budden Pod- or Joe Budden Podcast or Joe Rogan or Earn Your Leisure all are influencers of a particular culture. Or perhaps even news channels like Fox News or CNBC or CNN—they all are influencing a way of thought, a way of thinking, and therefore become influencers of a culture. It's true that past and uh, the past and powerful have significant influence over society, but you and I also create culture. The question that I want to pose to us today, through t- today and throughout this series, is. What type of culture are you building? Perhaps let me make that more corporate and collective as a question. What kind of culture are we building, Cornerstone Church? Without even knowing it, we're always building some kind of culture. We're always pressing the rules and values of a the, of the culture onto others as well. Paul Tripp explains this well in some examples of culture-shaping opportunities when he says, if you are, are a spouse or a parent, you'll have countless opportunities each day to shape a kingdom of God, culture of love, forgiveness, intimacy, and unity. But many times we allow the kingdom of self to shape our words our, and our actions in our home. And that can produce a culture of guilt, manipulation, fear, and distance. Or perhaps you're not a spouse or a parent. You may be a coworker, a student, a community service volunteer, or some type of teammate, and you'll have an influence to, or an opportunity to have influence to develop a culture of encouragement, honesty, integrity, and positivity. But at the same time, you'll, you may be tempted by selfish motives, which become fertile ground for a culture of jealousy, bitterness, and ungodly jealousy, or ungodly rivalry, or perhaps you're even a neighbor, a coach, or a community volunteer, and God will open up doors for you to build an, a gospel-centered culture of service, generosity, and hospitality. Will you walk through them, or will you get too busy building your own kingdom of self to notice? Or lastly, if you're a member of a church, you have an opportunity to build a culture where people take the word of God seriously— a culture of grace, a culture of vulnerability and accountability, a culture of discipleship. And yet, even in that, we will become tempted to use the church to serve us rather than serve God and others. We can create a culture of consumerism where lukewarm Christianity parades through the crowds. And though you may show up, though your presence may be noticed, the impact of your presence will never be felt as God intended. We are desiring for God to realign our hearts towards him. We are desiring for God to, as many have heard us say, to bring revival not out there but inside here. The change that we desire to see happen out there is often relegated to the reality of how willing the people of God are, or how willing the people of God are actually committed towards surrendering themselves to God. These values are important to us because we believe they embody something about God that the world needs to see and experience and so today we're going to focus on our first point biblical rootedness biblical rootedness is defined as this the word of God is our most valuable asset it's the constant determiner for all our decisions and fuels a holistic approach to caring for and serving others our commitment to do it or our commitment to it prioritizes biblical truth over trends and personal preferences. The book of Joshua has become one of my favorite books because it just overflows with the reality of God's faithfulness towards his people. The first verse in the book uh begins by opening up the context for us of what has actually taken place it reads as follows after the death of moses the servant of the lord the lord said to joshua the son of Nun, moses's assistant moses my servant is dead now therefore in the esv i think i like it a little bit better says now therefore arise moses is dead and if you are one who may not be familiar with the story of Moses, let me briefly give an overview about who this man was. The book of Moses in uh, the previous chapter, verse, uh, the previous book, Numbers, verse 34, or chapter 34, verse 10 through 12, it gives a eulogy of the life of Moses. He says that no prophet has arisen again in all in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unparalleled for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do against the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to all his land, and for all the mighty acts of power and terrifying deeds that Moses performed in the sight of Israel. In short, Moses was a bad man. Now, I'm using bad not to say he was actually bad, but in terms of slang meaning bad for good, right? Right? Sometimes I get questions like, Pastor Rich, what did you mean by that? And so I'm just trying to bring everybody together to make sure that we're all on the same accord. Moses was a bad man. And just so uh, we can really come into the reality of his death, Moses was a generational leader. Moses was someone who God had used to lead a nation out of captivity. Moses was the man that God used to literally lead a nation across a sea where as they crossed the sea, walls of water stopped in midair and allowed the people of God to pass through with not even a hint of dampness on the soil. If you know anything about dirt, you don't wanna walk in dirt which, or mud with your good shoes, right? You wanna walk on a ground that doesn't necessarily scuff up your Air Force Ones or your Jordans. God had used Moses to bring down from the mountaintop the 10 commandments of God. This man, Moses, was a big deal. And so when the text reads that Moses is dead, you've got to enter into the grief and misery that was taking place. The potential hopelessness of the people of God who had looked to Moses to lead them, not only out of Egypt, but through the wilderness and what was expected to lead them into the promised land. But Moses is now dead. The questions of where, what are we gonna do now, Lord? The questions of, God, have you now abandoned us now that you've taken our leader away from us? God, will we die in this desert now that Moses is gone? Perhaps you remember in school where we, they show you videos uh, during history class of the funeral procession that took place for leaders like John F. Kennedy or Martin Luther King, Jr where people all across the nation are weeping and wondering probably the very same thing. Will all progress cease now that the man or servant is gone? Uh, Brothers and sisters, very soon and very early in the text, we see that God wants to remind us that God's work rests in God's hands. Transitions are not signs or signals that God has now lost control God reveals himself early on in the text. After after the death of Moses, two things are mentioned. They say the Lord's servant and the Lord spoke. Anytime you see a word in scripture uh, repeat itself, there's some significance there. God's wanting to catch our attention. And so that word Lord in the Hebrew is the word for Yahweh. It's the most personal and intimate name for God himself that communicates that God is faithful to his people. And not only faithful during the time of Moses, but faithful for all ages. God has never abandoned his promise, nor has he abandoned his people, just because servants of him transition out of the way. God reveals himself and describes himself in those words to give us assurance and security that God's still the same God right now as he was before Moses died. It is his word that carried his people from every generation and through all generations. How do we know this? God says that Moses died, but then the text moves on and says that God spoke to Joshua. What that means is that God is in the business of carrying on his work despite the servants that may cease to be alive. His word is not hindered by the transitions of service. One scholar would say this, that when the man of God dies, nothing of God dies with him. Another commentator would say this, that Yahweh's fidelity, his commitment to his people, does not hinge on the achievements of men, however gifted they may be, nor does it evaporate in the face of funerals or rivers. Y'all, enter into the story and realize that God was not scrambling for another solution just because his servant transitioned out of the way. When leaders transition out, God is not saying, oh no, what am I going to do now? God is not going back to his drawing board and acting as if he didn't know that this was going to happen and somehow now has to enter into time and space and come up with a solution. God is sovereign. And his sovereignty doesn't exist in our time and space. It exists outside of time and space, which means that God already foreknew this was going to happen before any of those people were actually alive to experience it. He spoke it into existence before the creation of the world and therefore he is perfectly capable of completing that which he purposed regardless of who is in the pulpit or regardless of who is in the front, regardless of whatever that leader is that he's going to use to accomplish it. The past three years, there were time and time again where we saw people punt their faith as a a result, to, to some extent, because they saw a Christian hero that they looked up with and had trusted show themselves to to be a sinner. That there were people who said, I'm done with Christianity because they experienced harm from other Christians who didn't necessarily understand or even agree with the the, the biblical or the clear biblical uh, convictions and things that we see in scripture towards a given particular or a particular group of people. And the question that that begs us to ask, or the question that we need to ask ourselves is, was your Christianity built on God's word or on the person who taught you the word? As leaders, we, or as people, it's actually God's grace to us that he allows leaders to transition out of the way. It's God's grace because you and I, we have a tendency of looking at some. Grace is to say, no, I want my people to understand that no matter how gifted a person is, I am their God, not them. Moses is dead. God never intended for your faith to be rooted and grounded on a leader or a person so that as that leader goes, so does your faith. God has always intended for your faith to be built upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ. These marvelous works and miracles were not done by Moses. They were done through Moses. There's a difference. When we think about the word of God and being rooted in it, in the fact that God is faithful to his word, let us be reminded that God's word is what is eternal. Man is temporal. Isaiah testifies about this very thing that the grass withers, the flowers fade, but it is the word of God that lasts forever. God, in these early verses, he's showing us that he is not he's faithful to his word, but he's also faithful to provide everything that is needed to fulfill his word. In 2019, the NBA, the NBA playoffs was going on, and uh, the Warriors had acquired a, a player named Boogie Cousins early on in the season. And the acquisition of Boogie Cousins was, in many people's eyes and respect, um, the key piece that would lead them to get another chip— So I remember watching that, uh, I think it was round two, where Boogie Cousins gets a freak accident and a season-ending injury. So Draymond Green is having an interview and they're asking him, man, how do you feel about Boogie? And of course he says, man, I feel my heart hurts because this was the first time that Boogie had ever been in the playoffs. But then he goes and he starts reciting name after name of player that would need to step up. And the thing that stood out to me about Draymond Green's interview was that he left the interview with these few words, we have a next man up mentality. We have a next man up mentality. Our roster is deep. And therefore, with one man goes down, another person has to step up and fulfill that role. God is in the ministry of next man up. God is not depleted of any resource simply because somebody who was seen as great in the kingdom moves on. God wants to remind us that the work of his church, the work that he's going to do through his people, is to be rooted and grounded on him. Brothers and sisters, do you, do you actually believe that God would put the responsibility of what he wants to do in this world on the shoulders of frail and fragile men? No, God's work rests on his shoulders. The sovereignty of God for us as God's people is the pillow that we rest our head on. Because we know that God allows us to do work for him, but ultimately it's God doing the actual work through us. Hear this quote on the sovereignty of God. He says, no revolving world, no shining of star, no storm, no creature moves, no actions of men, no errands of angels, no deed of the devil, nothing in all the vast universe can come to pass otherwise than God has eternally purposed here is a foundation here is a foundation of faith. Here is a resting place for the intellect, intellect. Here is an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. It is not blind fate, unbridled evil, man or devil, but the Lord Almighty who is ruling the world and ruling it according to his own good pleasure and for his own eternal glory. God takes his word seriously and he is faithful to fulfill every single word that he has told his people he will do. But not only that, God also uses his word to lead us into his work. Keep reading down the text. It says, now you and all the people prepare to cross over the Jordan to the land I am giving the Israelites. The second point is this. Being biblically rooted means being willing to surrender to God's plan for our lives. He says, now you... One observation, though God is giving a commission and a charge to Joshua, he communicates his plan as it relates to the whole people of God. That there's a role that Joshua plays, but what God is calling, uh, uh, what God is communicating here is a call for all of God's people to participate in the work that he desires to do for his life. Joshua had been consistently comfortable with being the number two guy, Joshua was Moses' assistant. Joshua was a man who was close up to, enough up to Moses to experience God and his glory descending down on Mount Sinai. Uh, M- Joshua was close enough to Moses to witness the miracles, the to, to escape from Egypt. He, he saw God work miraculously through Moses. And yet God says, next man up, Joshua, I'm calling you to lead my people. I think one thing that we can take from here is the reality that uh, when God calls us to a work, the first resource that we look to should not be Enneagram. The first resource we shouldn't look to should not be a personality test or a spiritual gift assessment. The first resource, actually, that we should look to is the very source of the person who created us and wired us and put inside of us all that he has purposed for us to do. There's a reality here, y'all, that we gotta be careful and boxing God in to what we think he's going to do with us because of how he's worked in us in the past. There may be things that God has called you to do and used you in miraculous ways in the past, but that doesn't mean that he won't call you into something else that is going to force you to get out of your comfort zone. Uh, Don't talk yourself out of thinking that God is not calling you to do something because in your own minds, you don't measure up to the task. The reality of anything that God calls us to do is that it's always greater than what you could accomplish yourself. That's the reality that God doesn't call people into things that they can do in their own strength. God always calls you to himself and to trust so that you may walk by faith and not by sight. This is the life of a believer. And my fear is that there are many of us in the room, in this room who have suppressed what God is desiring to do in your life because you're comparing yourself to other people. God has called you to go and make disciples, but you're too scared to tell or teach somebody about Jesus because you don't measure up to the giftedness of a John Piper. You don't measure up to the giftedness of a John O. You don't measure up to the giftedness of a Charlie Dates or whoever your favorite preacher is. And so you say, well, if I'm not as gifted as them, then God must not be calling me. And that's a lie. Uh, what has God put on your heart that you have igno- been ignoring for a month, for months, for years? Because you've allowed fear to take hold of you. You've been more concerned with what God has done through other people's lives than what he wants to do through your life. God calls Joshua not because he's in any way worthy of the task, not because of in any way that he's qualified for the task. God calls Joshua because God is confident that as long as Joshua realizes that I'm with him, then he can do everything that I've called him to do. The calling will require us to trust in what we can't see. That's the definition of faith. The writer of Hebrews says that now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen, meaning that you're going to have to lean on something that your senses can't pick up on. You're going to have to stand rooted in something that is firm and um, um, something that we, we have, uh, that's firm and grounded in the truth of what God has spoken even when what you see with your eyes doesn't necessarily make sense. God doesn't just call us to trust him and to walk by faith, but God is leading us towards what's actually best for us. God was calling the people of God out of, it, out of the wilderness to move into the promised land. And sometimes we can confuse what God is calling us to do um, or think about it in such a way to where God is calling us to something less than what we can preserve for ourselves. He was calling them to possess their purpose of existence. He was calling them into a place of rest and peace because what God knows and what we need to know, brothers and sisters, is that to be in God's will is the best place that we can truly be. I remember when God called us to move to this side of town about 12 years ago. My wife and I, we were just in a position where I had just lost my job and we no longer could live where we're currently living. And so we're praying and asking God, God, what's next? And I remember us looking at apartment after apartment after apartment. And If you know anything about apartment searches, it's typically people ain't gonna rent to you when you ain't got no job. And so we just prayed and we asked the Lord, Lord, we feel like you're calling us to this area, but we need you to do the impossible. And so we went to apartment after apartment and right when we would get to the application part that said employment, I would explain to them, yeah, you know, my job was dissolved last week, and I don't really know, I'm looking for a job, but we've got a few, you know, we've got a little bit of money, so we can put down maybe two or three months of rent. To which they would say, nah, bro, I'm sorry, man, we can't can't do that. And it wasn't until we drove to a road not too far from here, Atwood Street, that we were driving by, and one of our prayer requests had been, God, we want to be somewhere where there's already community existing, in a place where we could actually engage our neighbors, and so we drove by this road, and as we headed toward this potential spot, we saw kids all playing in the street. We went up to the apartment and we looked at it, and we're like, "Man, this is—it's within our budget. It seems like a good fit. God, this—I feel like this is it." So we drove to Decatur, and once we got there, we sat down with the uh, the leasing agent. She began to ask us these random questions about our life, like, "Why do y'all want to live over here?" What do y'all really do? Why did y'all come to Atlanta? Just kind of probing questions that I was like, it's kind of personal, we just want an apartment. <laughs> but as we were filling out the application, she said something, we got to the employment part. And when we got to the employment, I began to say the same thing I had told a bunch of people. Man, you know what, I just recently was let go of my job and I don't have active income right now, but we can put th- two to three months of down payment rent in order for us to secure this location so that hopefully within three months, I have a job. And I remember like it was yesterday, the lady saying this to me and she just simply said, don't worry about that, I like y'all. I believe that God is calling y'all to live here. And she said, just put down one month month of rent and you'll be good. It was in that moment that I realized that when God calls you to something, And when you submit to that call, that he takes care of the rest. That you don't have to be concerned about how you're going to be taken care of. You don't have to be concerned about the potential obstacles or the potential hardships that will come. It's not that those things won't be there. It's just the reality that God has already paved the way and gone ahead of you. Joshua is told here, go and cross the Jordan, which I don't know about y'all. But if you're familiar with any river, any lake, you know that if you ain't got no boat, if you ain't got no swimming trunks, if you ain't got no flippers, then to cross miles wide worth of water is an impossible task. But I wonder if if Joshua had thought to himself, God, that's an impossible task, but I've seen you do it before. Uh, God, that's an impossible task, and I don't know how you're going to do it again, but God, I've seen you do it before and so joshua i think responds here in the way that which he says god i'm going to move forward i'm going to do what you've called me to do i'm not going to suppress or allow fear to hold me back god i want to walk in your purpose because i know that's where i'm going to find you the third point is this being rooted biblically means enduring in the work by taking hold of god's promises uh, I've learned a lot about gardening recently, and I've realized that farmers, uh, every single day, farmers will put a seed in the dirt. The only thing that they have as a guarantee is that little picture on a the cover of that particular seed package that shows you what you're going to get in the end. And that farmer puts that seed in the soil, and day after day, maybe twice a day, he's going out and he's watering it. And he's watering and he's feeding it the nutrients that it needs. And that little seed begins to grow up. And he does all this with the expectation that that little seed of corn is going to turn into an ear of corn. If a farmer is willing to build out their life around a seed turning into a piece of corn, that they can enjoy, that they can have for themselves, then believers, you and I should, not based on the possibility of a colonel turning into a corner cob, but on the assurance of the promises of God who guarantees that whatever he has said, he's going to accomplish. Yeah. <laughs> Verses 2b through 5, we see the promises that Paul, I mean, that God gives to Joshua and the people. Six promises follow the call. He says, "Moses, my servant is dead. Now you, all the people prepare to cross the Jordan to the land, I am giving the Israelites. I have given you promise." Or "I am giving the Israelites his first promise. I have given you promise." uh, everywhere that the sole of your foot treads, just as I promised Moses. Your territory will be, promise, from the wilderness uh, in Lebanon to the great river, to the Euphrates River, and all the land of the Hittites. And west of the Mediterranean Sea, no one will be able to stand against you, promise. And I will be with you, promise, just as I was with Moses. And I will not leave you, promise, or abandon you. Six promises are given here. And I think like the people of God, the question I would present to you all is, do you actually believe that God is with you when he says he's with you? Sometimes it's hard to take God at his word because all of our past experiences with people have been the letting down or the disappointment from people actually not keeping their word. And so we begin to internalize those hurts, those traumas, and then we begin to Uh, push that on God and his character. So when God says something, it's hard for us to take him at his word because we're like, yo, all my life I've been let down. All my life, people have told me that they were going to do things and they ended up not doing them. God, I hear you, but it's hard for me to trust you. Uh, The language of the text here is not God giving commands, but him giving commitments. God is saying, my people, I'm generous. This is the land I'm giving to you. My people, I'm gracious. It's not that you're getting the land because you earned it, but because of my kindness, I'm giving you all of this. God, God is our guardian. There's nobody or anything that's going to stand in the way of you getting everything that I said I had for you. God, as God, I'm going to lead you through the wilderness. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to lead you into the promised land. I'm going to show you every single boundary of the property in which I have for you. God as guaranteed. You can take this to the bank. I'm putting my name on it. And God as genuine. I will never leave you or abandon you. Isn't it so much easier to walk in the things that God has called us to do when the promises are connected to the call? When God assures us that what I have for you is what I have for you. And therefore, all he's asking is that we would just take hold of those very things. That the credit alone belongs to him, but that we would actually believe that God himself is trustworthy. That his words are not like men, that he should lie, but that he is is truth. There's no fault, there's no sin that can be found in him that when he says it, we can take that to the bank. God's presence is the only security we actually need because in it, we find everything that we actually needed. Think about that. That God's presence holds within it everything that we can imagine that we actually need. That's what he's calling us into Uh, The imagery of this is just think about the stars. Think about God's promises like the stars in the sky. That the darker the night gets, the brighter the promises become. That those are the things that we have to cling to, that God gives his people, which leads into my point number four, and I'll be done in a little. That being rooted biblically means allowing God's word to have its way in us. That being rooted biblically means allowing God's word to actually work in us. He says in six through nine, and I'm going to give an overview for the sake of time. He tells Joshua over and over again, be strong and courageous. I say it again, be strong and courageous. But what's really the thing that we got to take hold on is, is the emphasis that God puts on Joshua paying careful attention to do what God said he needed to do. I think the times that we're living in is that we are comfortable with only being familiar with God's word. We're comfortable with knowing a couple verses and being able to recite the ones that are easier, the ones that we grew up learning. And so the reality is that a lot of us don't experience the power of God in our lives to transform us because we're digesting and eating everything but the word of God. Uh, The word of God is what God uses to shape us, to form us, to produce godliness in us. And I'm afraid because the lie of the enemy has been that to in any way pay careful attention or to obey God's word is actually legalism. How many times have you heard someone that you've called to obey the word of God and they say, no, that's legalism? Uh, No, the reality is you don't understand what legalism actually is. That legalism is you working to earn God's favor through your obedience. But godliness is you living out the word of God in obedience because you love the one who you claim to know. Uh, When we talk about creating culture here, we got to realize that God, the culture that God is calling God's people to is to be those who are known for obeying his word. The text tells us what does obeying the word actually look like? Well, he gives us two categories. He gives us the category or the reality of God's called us to be a student of God's word. He tells us to observe carefully the whole instruction of God. Uh, if you go through this neighborhood, one of the sad realities is, is that you can talk to a number of different faith groups. And a lot of times they can recite more Bible to you than you can to them. The reality is, is that sometimes the enemy knows, well, oftentimes the enemy knows more of God's word than the believers of God's in his word. And so, if we're going to actually be rooted in scripture, if we're going to be rooted as a church, then that means that in the same way God takes his word seriously, that God is calling us to take his word seriously. The way that we form culture, or God forms culture in his people, is by his people saying, you know what, when the word of God is taught, I'm going to show up. Uh, when the church creates podcasts like Mirrors and Mirrors, I'm going to listen. When the church calls us to learn inductive Bible study methods, I'm going to be present because I need the skills and tools necessary to take the word of God seriously. But not only does he call us to be a student of it, he says, do not turn from it to the right or to the left. He calls us to actually be a follower of it. One of the things that I've noticed about our church in particular is that we're good at studying but we're not always good at living. Uh, And this is not an indictment or a judgment necessarily as if I'm not guilty of that at times as well, but it's a reminder to you and I that God gave us his word so that we would walk in his word. And that to walk in his word is actually to be walking with God. If you are not walking and living out the things that God has said, then you are not walking with God. You may have knowledge of God. You may be able to recite things about God. But you're not walking in step with God because God leads his people through his word. The courage and strength that God is calling us to, and I believe that God was calling Joshua to and the people to, is that true strength and courage is not the social works that we can do in our community. True strength and work is not the fact that we can gather in this building and sing great songs. True courage and strength for the people of God has been and will always be that there's a people that who, is, who are committed to actually embodying the very things that God has said and told us to live out. I'm not going to get much claps on that one, but that's okay. Uh, this is what faithfulness means to God, that you have a hold on God's word, but more than that, that God has a hold on you. What would a commitment look like this year? If after today you, you, you said, God, I want to, I want to like never before take your word serious. God, I want to like never before commit to feasting out of your word, not to get information, just to have information, but to find you. Yes. Yes. To be able to tell others accurately about who you are. To be able to cling to your promises for myself that when I go through these difficult situations and circumstances, my first response is not call a pastor up. My first response is to say, God, what do you say? What would that look like for us? If you haven't already done so, I think I would encourage you to say, uh, let's just start at the place of um, opening up a 52-week reading plan of the Bible. The hard work has been done. They already broke it up for you. All you have to do is say a commitment. Every day I'm going to read this amount of scripture. And I'm going to ask God as I'm doing it to meet me there, to be with me, to teach me. Or perhaps it's going backwards and listening to the the Windows and Mirrors podcast to see the Bible exposited in such a way that it helps us make sense. Sometimes reading the Bible, you can get intimidated and it can be like, man, this just doesn't make sense to me. So we lean on our brothers and sisters who God has gifted us with to help us teach us things and show us things that we may not have seen ourselves. Not to solely depend on them, but to build up some endurance, some skills so that we can have confidence that, man, God reveals His word to all His children, not just to His gifted children. Or perhaps a friend, ask a friend to hold you accountable to laboring to apply something from every sermon you hear this Sunday, uh, over the next few Sundays. It's easy to sit here for 45 minutes. If John is preaching, it's going to be an hour. <laughs> and then we walk out the door and we forget everything that we heard. If we're going to apply God's word, it's going to require intentionality. It's going to require to say, I can't apply everything, maybe. God, what's one thing? What's one thing that you would have me to apply to my life? And invite somebody else that's close to you to say, hey, I just want you to lay eyes on me. This is what I'm trusting God to apply in my life. If you see God's grace and you start to see that bear fruit, can you let me know? And if you don't, can you ask the question, man, how's that going? So that we as a people are actually living out biblical community and not just hanging out. In closing... The book of Joshua is not meant to look at Joshua or Moses and say, oh, how great were these men? The book of Joshua is a book that points us to somebody greater than Joshua. It's a book that points us to somebody who led all, who leads all people out of the wilderness into, into a promised land. Joshua was one who led the Israelites out of the wilderness and into a land, but the land was still imperfect. Yes, the land was filled with milk and honey. Yes, the land was vast and wide, but there was still sin present. The land was still broken. Jesus is our leader who, uh, in the same way Joshua obeyed every part of the Lord's law, Jesus obeyed the law and fulfilled it perfectly. In the same way that Joshua was a deliverer of people, sinners who were undeserving, Read the, read the story of Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute, and yet Joshua gave her his word that when the Israelites conquered the land that she would be spared. There is a number of cases throughout Joshua where you see people who are undeserving of mercy receive, receive mercy, but Joshua simply points us to someone better. Jesus is the one who, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus was the one who delivers people who are lost in darkness and brings them into his marvelous light. Jesus brings us into a better and more secure uh, reality of the mercies of God. But not only that, we see the conquering warrior of Joshua, victory after victory after victory. And what does he do? What does Joshua do with his victory? When he finally possesses the land, he spreads out his inheritance amongst the people. Uh, Jesus had a greater victory, that on the cross, Jesus died, and through the resurrection, Jesus was victorious over death, sin, and the grave. If that doesn't excite you, then I don't know what else to tell you, because the same old story that you're going to hear about Jesus every Sunday is the same one I'm going to tell you today, that Jesus rose in victory, and he shared his inheritance with you and I. Uh, It's not just an inheritance that is future tense, but it's present tense. It was the inheritance of now being once enemies of God and now being brought in to be sons and daughters. From being distanced from God and now being intimately close with God to once being a, a foe of God and now being turned into a friend of God. He offers forgiveness. He has given his Holy Spirit to those who have trusted to live inside us and to um, act as a, uh, a security, a... Um, 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 a prized possession that will one day be with God himself. Jesus is the great victor who has shared his inheritance with us, and one day we will spend eternity with our Father. Uh, The invitation is the same invitation that we give every single time, or hopefully give every single time, that if you don't know this Jesus this is your first time hearing about him, if this is your first time and you're sitting there and you're like, man, I want to know more, then the opportunity right now is to not think about what will other people think about you. The opportunity right now is not to wonder about, man, how will people see me? Maybe you were thought to be a Christian and realize, man, maybe I'm not who I thought I actually was. The opportunity right now is really an opportunity between you and God because as far as God may feel, we know in scripture that God is present everywhere. And in any given moment, the cry of faith, of asking God to take your sin and to replace it with the righteousness of Jesus and believe that the life that he lived was sufficient enough to save you is a free gift that's available and accessible to you right now in the seat that you're in. So we wanna pause for a moment and take some time to pray that if that's you, that you would feel courageous enough to make it known. You can come to the front. You can pull aside one of the pastors or the host team that you see and ask them, man, I just want to know a little bit more about Jesus. And we will pause and stop whatever we're doing to take that opportunity to tell you about the Lord that we've come to know in a personal way. We're here to just simply make Jesus known, simply make Jesus uh, to present him as the great god that he is but we're also here to be reminded and especially through joshua that jesus is our great deliverer that jesus is our savior if you're a christian when we take just a minute and just pray for those in the room who may not know jesus and then i'll close father we thank you for your holy spirit Your spirit is not bound by time or space. It's not bound by um, anything physical, that it moves wherever it pleases or that he moves wherever he pleases. And so, Father, I ask that the Holy Spirit would be ministering to the hearts of each and every person in this place. Father, we lift up the person who is confused about their faith. Father, would you meet them? Would you meet them in a unique way, whether it be through divinely setting up a conversation after church, Father. We pray for the believer who feels discouraged, Father. Would you remind them that you are at work in their lives, that they can renew a commitment to your word and to you even in this moment, Father, because you have greater grace than any of our sin. Father, I pray for the believer who is striving well, Father. Would you make clear to them and provide clarity maybe even for what you're calling them to do in this new season of life, Lord. But, Father, more than that, Father, I just ask that we all would take the time simply to meet with you. Take the time simply to reflect on what we've heard and confess any ways that we've allowed fear and doubt to cripple us. Any ways that we've allowed other people's voices about us to be louder than your voice to us. Father, I pray that we as a church would begin the process of becoming what you've called your people to be of being strong and courageous to hold tightly and to cling tightly to your promises and to be, to take seriously the word that you have given us, Father. To hear from you is to know you. And so I pray, Lord God, that we would not take that for granted, that we would respond in faith and trust that you are capable of providing strength to your children to obey what you've called them to. Father, would the fruits of that be manifested in the upcoming days and months through conversation, just through life-on-life interactions, through uh, our time of prayer on Wednesday nights, Lord. Father, would we be able to be in awe of the ways that you will be at work in and through this church? And Father, would you give us the courage to be known? Would you be able to give us all the courage to invite someone in to walk with us? To not be ashamed of saying, I need some help but to know that asking for help is really a sign of strength. Father, we need one another. So I pray that we would not just be like a family, but that we would be a family by your grace and through your spirit and through your word. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, At this time, we are going to, um, as a church family, Uh, We're going to pass the elements around and we're going to take communion together at the top of the year. And communion does three things for us. It provides us an opportunity to reflect on what Christ has done for us and the fact that he has died, he has given his body for us. And therefore we take just but a moment to think about that and to treasure that and to cherish that as a community. But it's also a time for us to share the benefits of what Christ has done for us and connecting us and uniting us as a family the grace of God the mercy of God the love of God being things that are tangible realities to us and that those are things that he has sacrificed so the elements are simply a foretaste of what's to come and lastly the Lord's table man is just opportunity for us to remember that God's promises are both present and future that there's an eternity that waits for us, and so we can, as a body, orient our lives about the reality that we can't see with our eyes yet, but we know is coming. As the host team pass the elements around, feel free to take uh, take it and pass it down, and then I'll come back up here after everybody's gotten their elements and uh, yeah, lead us in taking communion together as a family. Amen.